Hello, and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hello, friends. I am so incredibly excited to share with you my conversation with Debbie Millman. Debbie is so many things to so many people, and if you are not familiar with her yet, hold on to your seat. Named one of the most creative people in business by Fast Company and one of the most influential designers working today by Graphic Design USA, Debbie Millman is also an author, educator, curator, and host of the podcast, Design Matters. Debbie's podcast, Design Matters, is one of the first and longest-running podcasts. And as host and founder, Millman has interviewed nearly 500 of the most creative people in the world over the past 17 years. Design Matters won a 2011 Cooper Hewitt National Design Award, and in 2015, Apple designated it one of the best overall podcasts on iTunes, and in 2021, designated it one of their all-time favorite podcasts. Debbie is the author of seven books, including two collections of interviews that have extended the ethos and editorial vision of Design Matters to the printed page, How to Think Like a Graphic Designer, and Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits. Both books have been published in over 10 languages. Her most recent book, Why Design Matters, Conversations with the World's Most Creative People, was just released. It is a compendium of some of her best interviews with some of the world's most brilliant minds. Debbie co-founded the world's first graduate program in branding at the School of Visual Arts in New York City in 2010. Now, in its 12th year, the program has achieved international acclaim. Debbie's writing and illustrations have appeared in publications such as The New York Times, The Washington Post, New York Magazine, Print Magazine, Baffler, and Fast Company. She is the author of two books of illustrated essays, Look Both Ways and Self-Portrait as Your Trader, the latter of which has been awarded a Gold Mobius, a Print Typography Award, and a medal from the Art Directors Club. Debbie is also President Emeritus of AIGA, the American Institute of Graphic Arts, one of five women to hold the position in the organization's 100-year history, and was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award from AIGA in 2019. She is a frequent speaker on design and branding and has spoken at TED Women. Her talk was one of the top 10 most popular talks of 2020, and countless prestigious design conferences. She is married to writer and activist Roxane Gay, and the two of them split their time between New York and Los Angeles. Debbie is also an incredibly important person in my own life. We became friends in 2012, and over the past decade, we have become like family. She is, to me, like an older sister, a mentor, a confidant, and so incredibly beloved to me. I am so lucky to be a part of her world and to have access to her incredible brain and heart. Let's welcome Debbie Millman to the Lisa Congdon Sessions. (music) 
So Debbie, welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions. Many people listening might not know that we are close friends and uh, family to each other in that we adore each other and have seen each other through some beautiful things and some terrible things. And I do want to say that I am so grateful for our relationship and I am so incredibly honored to have you on the show today. I respect and admire and revere you so much. And this is truly a joy to be sitting here with you today. Oh, thank you, Lisa. I feel the same way. When you started to say that we're friends, I'm like, wait a minute, I think we're sisters. I know. (laughs) It's true. It's true. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I even think that with our glasses on and in black clothes, we look like we could be twins. It's true. It's true. (laughs) And I have been, frankly, a bit nervous about preparing for this interview because you are such an amazing interviewer yourself. And you say that you were terrible at interviewing in the beginning when you first started recording Design Matters, which has been on the air for what, like 17 years now? February 4th will be the 17th anniversary of the show, the show's launch. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. It's like the oldest running design podcast in the universe. Yeah. And it's, it's actually now just because so much time has passed by, it's, it's actually one of the longest running podcasts, period. It's crazy. It started off on the radio, which is nuts. It did. So the reason I'm bringing this up that you say you're a terrible interviewer is that now you are lauded for being one of the best interviewers in the world. And I think that is just such a good reminder for all of us that you can be an absolute crappy beginner at anything And eventually you can become not only amazing at it, but really one of the best in the world. So the first thing I want to know is, do you ever think about that, that particular achievement? And if so, how has that experience of transformation impacted how you approach the rest of your life? Well, I think that it's impacted almost everything that I do, probably most significantly, it has impacted my teaching. Because I have students, I have two groups of students. I have undergrads and I have grads. And in my undergraduate class, I teach seniors who are on the precipice of leaving the cocoon of college and ostensibly starting their real lives. And the expectations that they have for their real lives are what I believe to be not only unrealistic, but also unhealthy. They're all clamoring for young guns and new visual artists and 30 under 30 or 40 under 40 if there has beens. And I try to imbue the idea that anything worthwhile takes a long time to master. And as humans, as homo sapiens, we are not born knowing how to consciously do anything well. The only things we're able to do are the things that our reptilian brain controls, all of our involuntary actions, our breathing, our heartbeat, our eye blinking. But all the other things, walking, eating, talking, pooping, we have to learn how to do appropriately. And even that takes time. I mean, let's face it, my nephew took him five years to be potty trained. I know little girls who have spent four years until they really were very verbal. So I think the expectation that we have that we need to make it, you know, two years out of college is crazy. And that's a big reason why I still keep those podcasts up because I think if you can look at somebody 
and think, oh, they're doing a good job in this, or they're known for doing that. If you see their trajectory, if you see their origin story, you're then much more, I think you're much more gentle with yourself on what the expectations are for your initial output. Yeah. It's like Ira Glass has that, you know, story of being a beginner and that when you're a beginner, you know, you have good taste, but you don't necessarily have the skills to make the thing. Yeah. And that most people then, you know, try the thing for the first time that they imagine they can make in their head and they can't make it. Right. And so then they quit. And I'm sure you've probably found this in talking to so many creative people over the years, but truly like people who actually end up being super creative and super prolific are the people who can kind of show up over and over and over through that disappointment in the beginning of like, I can't make the thing, you know, my taste is better than my technical skill. Yeah. I still think that my taste is better than my technical skill. (laughs) Yeah. I think for most of us, that's true. You know, I still have problems turning on the TV with the remote. Roxanne goes crazy because she's like, how could you not know how to do this? I'm like, it's so confusing. So many buttons, so many options. I know. I'm like famously terrible with anything technical. And I wouldn't call myself a Luddite because I will always try the new thing. You know, I'm not on TikTok yet and I don't make NFTs yet, but, you know, I'm always, I'm fairly open and yet I don't know what I'm doing half the time. So I'm constantly, yeah, calling Clay and saying, please help me with this. I have no idea what I'm doing. So you credit much of the success of your podcast to the fact that you deeply research the people you are interviewing. And I actually remember the first time you interviewed me. And you asked me how I paid off the like $70,000 in debt that I had accrued before leaving my job to become an artist. And I was like, in the moment to myself, oh my God, that's on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And it ended up being a great leading question about discipline and commitment that, you know, we ended up having a conversation about. And I have stayed with you in your house and I have seen you immersed in people you are about to interview. No joke. So I'm wondering... Did you start off in the very beginning of Design Matters when it was a radio show? Did you start off knowing the importance of researching or is that something you learned as you began? Like how did that become such an important part of your process? Thank you for that great question. I love it. And I love that you've watched me do this. And I've loved that. I think I've been to you three or four times now. Yes. So that's also exciting. And and (laughs) there's always more to talk about, which is also, I think the mark of a good relationship. In terms of the research, it really became something that evolved over the years. When I started out, I had a list of 10 questions that I wanted to ask everyone. Mm. And they were, there were some origin story questions, some, some of the basic things that I thought designers would want to know about other designers. How do you know when something's good? How do you, how do you know when something's bad? How do you know when you should be finished? What's your first creative memory? You know, things like that. And, and that lasted for a while. And it was, it was kind of okay while I was interviewing designers because I think a lot of designers want to know that about a lot of designers. The show was also structured in a, in a different way. I started each show with a up to 10 minute or so monologue. And these were weekly musings on what was happening in the world, how I was navigating through my own issues. They were all scripted. I wrote them all in advance. They weren't just free talking. And I'd always try in some way to, to thread some topic that I knew I was going to talk to my guest about in that monologue. And I did 100 episodes like that. Those episodes also had commercial breaks, 
and they also had live call-ins. And so we had some regular callers that would call in with questions. Gregory from New Jersey was a favorite. Oh my gosh. And so it had a very different sort of timbre to it. And then after 100 episodes, I moved the show from Voice America, where it was indeed an internet radio show, which I turned into a podcast just by the sheer virtue of uploading it to the podcast section when there was one. Prior to that, I'd just been uploading the the digital files as if I was an indie musician. And that was because Brian Gomez Palacio suggested I do that. When I moved to Design Observer, then I had a real producer. And somehow I felt sheepish doing my monologues in front of this producer who was very formal and professional and very, very much the opposite of me. Plus, I started to feel that the guests that I had were less friends and more heroes, and that I started to feel that I needed to spend more time thinking about them than thinking about me. Mm. And so after the first episode with Curtis, which was my Stefan Sagmeister episode, the last monologue I, I wrote for the show was called Penelope. And then after that, I stopped. And then I spent all my attention focused on my guest. By by 2009, 2010, I started to broaden the horizons for the guests that I I was considering. I was getting a lot of people writing to me. And so I started interviewing various types of creative people. I'd always peppered in a few. Barbara Kruger was one, Shepard Ferry, people that were ever so slightly outside the realm of pure design and more in the fine art realm, and a couple of scientists and business executives and things like that. But then I really made an effort to begin speaking to playwrights and authors and musicians and performers and curators. And that required me to need more than my own reliance of design history and my own ability to riff on any particular design topic du jour. And so that's when the, the, the heavy-duty research kicked in. And it was really mostly motivated by extreme insecurity that I wouldn't know exactly what to talk to them about and that it was my job to be able to steward the, the interview in a way that, that showed that I knew what I was doing. <laughs> that's so funny. And, and now it's like you love it. Yeah, I do. I do. I do love it. Yeah, I do. And it shows because, you know, you, you, you find things on the internet that people don't even remember on the internet about them. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's go back to your childhood for a bit. Let's talk about what kind of kid you were. So if I were your second grade teacher, what would I have experienced with Debbie Millman in my class? Very interesting question. I think that if you were my second grade teacher, and then if you were my sixth grade teacher, you'd have a very, very different perspective. So my second grade teacher might say, Debbie is a bright light. She's full of excitement about coming to school, and she has a lot of friends, and she's always she's a little bit of a troublemaker, a little bit of a little bit of a yenta, talk too much, but she loves making things. She's whip smart, and she's full of life. And then what happened? What, how, well, how was it different in sixth grade? Yeah, then my parents got divorced. My world exploded. My mother married a monster. And my sixth grade teacher might say, Debbie is very introspective, sits at her desk with a furrowed brow a lot of the time, 
cried when she lost her milk money. So I gave her the nickel that she lost so she could buy milk and not get in trouble from her parents, which is somewhat concerning to me as a teacher to have witnessed and has a really far away look in her eyes that I can't seem to reach. And that started in sixth grade. And that, how long would you say that that sort of phase progressed for you? Well, it started really in fifth grade, but it wasn't like full on every single day until sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade. By ninth grade, my mother's second marriage ended. My biological father re-entered my life. I think it was the middle of eighth grade, like Mm. the end of the eighth grade year. So like June of, of eighth grade. And then the aftermath, you know, you deal with the aftermath which is almost as bad as the math. <laughs> and and that was sort of, the aftermath kind of was paralyzed for a while because for me at the time, I was very brazen. Well, first of all, I kept everything to myself. I didn't tell my parents much of anything because of a whole slew of reasons. I didn't know if I'd be believed. One doctor I did speak to didn't believe me accused me of having a boyfriend and not wanting my mother to know. It's like, are you insane? Wow. This is 1974. I don't have a boyfriend. I'm 13. Mm. And at that point, keeping things both to myself allowed me to feel less damaged in comparison to my friends in high school, junior high school and high school. It allowed me to pretend that everything was okay and most people could believe me. It allowed me, and I was very brazen in saying later on that he didn't win. You know, I I am still in control of my agency. In fact, I wasn't, but, and though he was long gone, I still wasn't, and it wasn't for decades until I would be again. I, I wanted to feel stronger and pretend I was stronger than I was. And I lived like that for a long time. Yeah. And you, you, you know, experienced so much abuse and trauma as a kid, and you're, you've been very open about this, and, you know, emotional, physical, sexual. And I've heard you say that you sometimes are surprised when you look back on your childhood and your teenage years that you came out as well-adjusted and, you know, healthy as you did. Talk about what made you a survivor, what helped you survive. Like, not that you wouldn't go back and change some things, but, like, you survived, right? You didn't end up addicted to drugs or on the streets or pregnant at, you know, 18. So talk about what made you a survivor, what helped you survive. I think some of that has to do with genetics. Mm. And I've done a lot of studying about, you know, why it is somebody that falls into drugs or alcohol or substance abuse of any kind. It's not, it's not because they're not resilient. It's because this is the way that their genetics has given them a resource in many ways to just deal with it. It's not, I don't know that it, I would say it's a choice. I don't know that I chose to not abuse substances or get pregnant at 18 and, and so forth. I think that in some ways I got really lucky with my genetics, as did my brother. Whereas some of my step-siblings weren't as lucky and some of my half-siblings weren't as lucky. So... I think a lot of it has to do with my recognition very, very early on in college that while I was presenting myself as normal, undamaged, straight, you know, all the things that I thought were necessary to 
be perceived in the world with respect in the 80s, 70s and 80s, I was very cognizant that I needed help. And so very privately was starting therapy even as early as my college years in the student health center. And let's be clear, I was going to say that was like really before therapy became a thing that we did, which wasn't really until the the 90s. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting is that when my mother did find out about some of the abuse that, that had happened under her watch, she did take me to a counselor. We all went, my brother, she and I, we, we had individual sessions, but we would all sit in the waiting room waiting for each other. And really the only thing I remember about that time was that there was a copy of Jane Eyre in the waiting room. And I looked forward, and it's a big book, I looked forward every week to going to sessions so that I could read about Jane and Mr. Rochester and still have vivid, some of my most vivid memories of that part of my life are of reading that book and the imagination of Jane calling out to Mr. Rochester over the ocean and it reaching him. And, oh my God, that book means so much to me. I wouldn't say necessarily that beyond my experience reading Jane Eyre, that did particularly much to help me. I don't think it hurt me, but I don't remember much about the actual sessions. But then when I went to college, I did go, I would sneak off to the campus student health center and and talk to people. And then when I graduated, one year after I graduated college, so 1984, I started therapy. I started therapy and big time therapy at the time I was doing individual sessions and group sessions and I was going to survivor workshops and all sorts of things and, and put it around doing that for about six years. And then in 91 found, believe it or not, the current therapist I still see today who saved my life who helped me transform and save my life on every level. Yeah, I had a a similar experience of finding somebody who saved my life. And while I don't see her anymore, I am incredibly grateful for that relationship. Therapists are very important and influential people. Your latest book is called Why Design Matters, and it's a collection of your most timeless interviews from the past 17 years on Design Matters World. I guess when you made the book, podcasts have been around less time than that. But I'm really curious about what it was like culling through a decade and a half of 400-something-odd interviews to determine what would be included and how the book would be organized. Because that's... Mm -hmm. It's organized into these sections based on sort of like a, I don't know, a category of person. Mm. It just seemed like a monumental task. It was. So what was that like for you? It was brutal. (laughs) It was brutal. Well, first of all, I've done, you know, 450 or so interviews. The book could only be a finite number of pages. It wasn't going to get bigger just because I wanted to include more people. So I had to really figure out how I was going to include the most information I could about, or the most interview I could from from each one, if I could, and then how else to include people. As the show has evolved, my conversations have gotten longer and deeper, more meaningful. And my book was originally contracted to be 70,000 words. We were able to get a few more pages. I was able to reduce the font size And so ultimately the book is 150,000 words. Mm. It includes about 60 interviews. And the interviews, I had to really be very 
strict about because the average interview is about 10,000 words, the ones that I like the most. (laughs) I needed to be able to extract a piece of the interview that could tell a story in and of itself. A lot of my shows, a lot of my podcasts, every single word of an interview counts. For example, my interview with Chase Jarvis, just as an example, there was no way to exerp 4,000 words out of a 10,000-word interview when we're talking about death, for example. Like, you can't, you just can't minimize that. And so the deeper the conversations I had, the harder it was to say, you know, I'm going to excerpt this, and people will understand the context. So that was really, really hard for the interviews where I couldn't do that, but wanted some representation of what was important to me, I included quotes. So I would go through the interview and extract a quote that has sat with me or meant a great deal to me in some way. And those are included throughout. So there are about 60 interviews, but probably another 60 or 70 pages of quotes, very large, full page, illustrated type that focus on what I believe is, or not focuses on, reveals the spirit of that person. And then there are, I think, five essays as well. It's a beautiful book. Did you design it? I I co I worked with very closely with Alex Kelman, Myra Kelman's son. He was the designer. It was very collaborative. I would say that all of the ingenuity that you see in the book is his. The idea of how it was going to be organized and the art direction in terms of the full page photos and things like that. That was something that I brought into the project. That's what I wanted. And then we very, very closely collaborated on the cover, but I would say without a doubt, he was the designer. Well, it's really funny because his mom's page, the one thing that stuck out to me immediately is the M in Myra is her M. And then the rest of it is in whatever font you're using. And I just thought that was so delightful. Yes, yes. (laughs) And perfect. There was something incredibly, I don't know, beshared, kismet, serendipitous about the notion that two of the biggest influences of my life, Tibor Kelman and Myra Kelman, had a son who's now all grown up, has a design practice of his own, well-respected design practice of his own, and I got to get to work with him on the design of my book. And you know, if anybody had told me that in 1988, when I was lamenting the state of my own practice, that these two heroes of mine would have a child who would ultimately one day, way into the future, design what is essentially my monograph, I'd be like, you're on crack, stop. <laughs> It's it's a beautiful thing. Ugh, I love hearing these stories. Tell me about an interview that changed you or how you thought about something in a profound way. Oof. There there's there are a couple. Um two that didn't make it into the book actually, but again, not because of the power, but just because there was no way to limit the amount of interaction that was in the, in the podcast, in that interview. Yeah. Um, And then one ended up happening after the interview was over and then a subsequent conversation. So I'll tell you both because I, I have talked about these before, so I hope they're not redundant to your listeners, but they're super meaningful to me. And I think that 
even if somebody's heard it before, it still gives me goosebumps every time I say it. So the first, the first one is with David Lee Roth. David Lee Roth was the former frontman of the band Van Halen. And Eddie Van Halen died last year, so it's not like Van Halen's ever going to get back together, which is tragic. But in 1984, I was one year out of college, 1984, Van Halen had one of the biggest albums on the planet. It's like It was like that in Thriller, you know, essentially. They came out with the album 1984, and they had many number one songs from that album, the number one tour, the number one video. They were, they were like the most popular dudes on the planet. They were sex, drugs, and rock and roll personified. And I interviewed David Lee Roth a couple of years ago, right before COVID. And he now has a very successful tattoo company, Tattoo Inc. and accessories and things like that. And he's still very dapper and he's still very funny. He's still very, he's still very much a jester. And he sat in my studio and I, and I, I couldn't help, you know, I had to talk to him about it's talking about his past. That's part of what the show is about. The origin story. How did you get to where you are right now? And so he said, so what was it like in 1984 to be the most popular dude on the planet? Number one album, number one single, number one tour, number one video. And, you know, he's a jester, but he stopped and he was very pensive and quiet for a moment. And and this is all on the show, so it's something that people can still listen to. And he said, well, you have to be really careful when you get to the top of the tallest mountain in existence. Because when you get to the top, it's almost always something you're doing alone. It's always cold. And there's only one direction to journey from there. And that just blew my mind. It was like, because despite how long it's taken me in my career, and I know you'll relate to this too, despite how long it's taken me, I've always been in a rush. I have always been in a rush. And when he said that, I thought, you know, there's still so much I want to do. I was on the precipice of turning 60, and suddenly it seemed okay to not peak, not reach the tippy top of that mountain until like maybe the day before I die. Because what does that mean when your best work is behind you, when you're looking in the rearview mirror at what you're proudest of? I don't want that. But my whole life, I've been in this race up the mountain. I've been really frustrated sometimes by how thick the air was to get through to the mountain. Felt like I was walking through water or sand. And now suddenly, I thought, you know what? small moves, you know, small moves up that mountain might not be so bad. And so that's a really profound mind shift that happened with David. And then the other is with Danny Shapiro, who was after, after our interview, and this is many years ago, she came into my office at SVA. I have my podcast studio in my branding master's program at SVA. And she saw a stack of books on my desk, all about confidence like a whole slew of books had come out about confidence. And at the time, I sort of perceived confidence as the holy grail. Where do you find it? How do you get it? How do you mine as much as possible and hide some in the closet so you always have some for a rainy day? And she looks at these books and she kind of scoffed and she's like, oh, I think I think confidence is really overrated. I was like, what? <laughs> as my 11-year-old niece would say, what? And she said, yeah, I think most really confident people are kind of obnoxious. I think what's far more important than confidence is courage, courage to take the step into doing something 
and then developing confidence as you're doing it. And another mind blow. And I've taken that on and have, have repeated this many, many times because I think a lot of people wait for confidence to show up. And I think I, I spent a year thinking, okay, what is my definition of confidence? And what I came to understand for myself, at least, is that confidence is the successful repetition of any endeavor. You are very rarely, unless you're a prodigy, there's very little that anybody does that they're good at when they first do it. You know, back to the first part of our conversation about how long does it take to get good at being a podcaster, for example. You know, we can't do anything well when we're first born. You know, we all we can do on our own are the things that are involuntarily controlled by our reptilian brain. We can't talk, we can't walk, we can't do anything. And it takes time to do to learn these things. Why would we ever think that, oh, just because I want to be playing tennis well, I'm going to play tennis well the first time I play tennis. And I'm one of those sort of narcissistic people that want to try something and do it well right away. And if I don't do it well, I don't want to do it. So there. And that's not the healthiest way to approach growth and learning. I'll tell you that. So that was a big, big thing. And now I do teach my students that you can't find confidence or wait for confidence or go into a store and pull it off a shelf. You have to develop it over time, practicing courage while you're doing something that courage really becomes that birthplace of confidence. I was having a conversation with another friend who's, you know, in her 50s, I think she's closer to your age than my age. And she's got kind of in a new phase in her career and she's really dealing with some imposter syndrome. And, and I, it's something that I've really sort of worked through a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. And she was asking me about my story and I was like, well, it's not like I woke up one day and I realized that I was no longer an imposter. It took, it took me continuing to show up and continuing to be nervous in social situations at design conferences and continue to say yes to opportunities to kind of lean into the fact that I'm always going to be a little nervous, (laughs) you know, and I'm always going to feel a little, you know, flustered, but but I'm no different than any of these other people because A, they're all feeling the same way too. And, you know, no one's standing over there in the corner saying, oh, there's Lisa over there. She doesn't know what she's doing, Mm -hmm. right? Like we always imagine that everybody's looking at us, pointing out what's wrong and nobody else is talking about you. No, they're they're worried about themselves. (laughs) That's right. And, And I said, it just give it time and like keep showing up. Like that's for me has been, and I think that's akin to what you're saying. It's been really important. So you say the show and the book are about how incredibly creative people design the arc of their lives. So your show is really less about design with the big D now, as you already kind of mentioned, and more about being human. And I've really, even since I've known you, I've kind of noticed that shift in the show. So what is it that you hope people who read this book or listen to your podcast experience, what do you want them to walk away with? Like, What's your goal in having these kinds of conversations? My goal in having these conversations is to allow people to see that some of the createst people in the world struggle with the same things everyone struggles with. How do I get up and make something again? How do I overcome imposter syndrome? Or if I can't overcome it, how do I integrate it into a more healthy way to live my life? How do I, how do I feel okay about myself? 
in a world that sometimes feels like it's falling apart? How do I contribute something meaningful? What is my purpose? Do I, do I deserve to be alive? What is my worth? What is my legacy? What do I stand for? I find that anybody that's making something from nothing, and that could be a scientist, it could be a bread maker, it could be a textile designer, it could be an artist, a performer, a musician, the act of conjuring up something from nothing is magic. And that is universal. We combine a whole series of things to make something brand new. And in that process, we ask a whole slew of questions of ourselves to find that unique thing. That is endlessly fascinating to me. The idea of making. I'm First of all, I'm happiest when I'm making something. And I think a lot of people are happiest when they're being creative, when they can just direct their own imagination in whichever way they want to. And that's such a gift and such a privilege. And I love to hear the way, first of all, I love to ask people how they do it. And I love to hear the ways in which they've constructed these pathways in their lives. Because on one level, they're very common. And on other levels, they're entirely different. And I think that being able to witness that in someone else, you know, you're seeing their soul in that witnessing. That's extraordinary, and that's, mm. and that's what I try to do. Mm. You say that when you turned 50, you, you began to come to terms with your mortality, and, and you said to yourself, like, in all caps, like, what am I doing with my life? And that by the time you were 55, just five years later, you had radically changed your life, you came out as queer, you sold your business, you were living a far more alignment with your true self. And this was around the time that I was becoming friends with you, so having no idea that, you know, that this was really happening until much later. But I love this idea of transformation after 50. And, you know, we have been talking about sort of the youth obsessed culture and how, you know, people think that they need to arrive at a certain place by a certain time. And I think about it every day. And I also think about this question, if not now, when? And I know that question has been enormously important to you Mm. for the past decade. So what has asking that question manifested in your life? Like, it is sometimes these very simple questions that can change us. And and so I'm just curious, like, what that question has done for you, if not now, when? Well, up until about 48 or 49, I was not in any way thinking about mortality, death, endings, the finite. I had no issues whatsoever turning 40. In fact, I felt like I was coming into my full Sharon Stone self (laughs) and dyed my hair blonder and was just feeling very sexy and just had no issues at all. But as I I moved well into my 40s, by 48, I was like, oh my God, 50 is a very different number than 40. And then 49 and into 50, was it was really traumatic. It was the first time in my life that I felt life was finite, that I only had a limited amount of time. And if I was really lucky, I was only halfway through, or I was already halfway through, and that the next 50 might not be quite as physically easy for me as the previous. And so I started to think about what that meant and realized that if I didn't make 
some significant changes that I was going to be sort of living on autopilot, which I'd kind of been doing, but it was a fun, a fun drive. <laughs> I enjoyed what I was doing. I was, I was becoming successful. I was making good money. I was, I had everything that I'd wanted that I thought I wanted at the beginning of my career for the most part. But I, I did harbor a number of secrets that I wasn't willing to face first and foremost that I suspected that I was queer and that took some time and I did come out when I was 50 and have been out and proud ever since. <laughs> I remember after my first relationship ended with with my first my first queer love, somebody said, oh, you're going to go back to men now? And I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I may be heartbroken, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> and and so you know that that relationship gave me a lot of courage because I was so worried prior to coming out that I would be judged I had so much inner homophobia I really was I grew up in a time where queer people were heavily discriminated against kids were bullied in school stonewall and and my own parents and their own sort of, I, I remember my brother was moving in with his girlfriend and her sister and her sister had recently come out. And my father was like, why are you going to live with a bunch of lesbians? And I was like, at that point, you know, I was just coming out and afraid to tell him like, oh, guess I'm not telling you today. <laughs> you know? So, so I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of shame, a lot of shame. Also, you know, I had felt so damaged to begin with the part of the reason that I didn't come out sooner was because I already felt so damaged that any more difference in me from like sort of average girl next door was too much for me to bear. And this was all, again, inner homophobia. And then that just, you know, once you make the decision to do something and you see that the world doesn't fall apart and really doesn't care <laughs> for the most part, it makes it a little easier. I'm fortunate that I was in a position with with my age and, and my place in life. I didn't have to worry about being kicked out of my house I didn't have to worry about being homeless. I didn't have to worry about being abandoned or brutalized. That had happened earlier for other reasons. But I should tell you that I didn't tell my dad that I had come out and didn't even by the time he died. He died a few years later, three years later. And I never told him because I was too afraid of his judgment. Do you regret that? If I'd had a really easy relationship with my dad, and this was just some of my own judgment that would have been evident in my telling him, then I would love to have said yes. But no, I don't regret not mm -hmm. telling him because he was so angry with me for so many somewhat benign reasons that this would have just made it even worse. And I and the name calling and the rejection. He had already rejected me for so many other reasons that had nothing to do with my sexuality at all that it it wouldn't have made any difference. Mm -hmm. I still would have been treated pretty brutally. Mm -hmm. So this younger version of yourself, and I don't know if it's the sixth grade, the eighth grade, the 20-something, the 30-something, but this sort of pre-50 Debbie, does she still live in your psyche? Are you at odds with her? You've been able to like integrate her into your story in a meaningful way. And like, you know, I something I struggle with is somebody who like just kind of figured out how to be happy in my 50s. So I struggle a lot with like the pre-50 version of me 
And I just, and I wonder about that. Like I, it's a question that I'm asking a lot of my friends who are older and who live very differently now than they they did when they were younger. You know, I think part of the way that I learned how to survive when I was younger was segmenting. Mm. So I could have fun at school. I could have good, meaningful friends and all the crap and the shit and the brutality that was occurring elsewhere, I could put elsewhere while I wasn't involved in those things. So I could say that there are parts of 40s Debbie and even 30s Debbie, less so 30s Debbie, but definitely 40s Debbie that I can look at and say, man, what a work ethic, what, what a superstar, what you, you did so much with so little. I can look back on that and think, you were incredible. I wish you knew you were incredible. But I can also say, oh, all those years pretending to be straight, working so hard to have relationships with men and being married twice and all, you know, I feel really ashamed of the way that I conducted myself in those relationships because they weren't relationships with someone else. They were relationships that I constructed in a way to feel okay about who I was in the world. And I look back on that with a lot of regret, a lot of regret. Yeah. It's hard because I think... Loving those older iterations of yourself or even the things that you did and you may have done in your life that you've, you internalize so much shame about, right? Like understanding that those are all parts of you and who you've become and that actually without them, you wouldn't actually be the person that you are, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's just, but it's so hard to do. What are you most afraid of? Dying before I fulfill my potential. Mm. And do you have an idea? So this is the next question is going to follow up on that. So you just turned 60. When you lie in your bed with your eyes closed as you're falling asleep or whatever, and you allow yourself to imagine your life or yourself in the future, what do you imagine? More art, less money. Mm. Say more about that. I grew up so financially insecure that the lead gene in my life as a 20-year-old and as a 30-year-old and as a 40-year-old was self-sufficiency. The problem with using self-sufficiency as a foundation for safety is that there's really nothing that's going to allow you to feel safe other than working on why you don't feel safe. Like there's, you can't build a tall enough moat, a strong enough wall, a deep enough barrier to protect yourself. So if you don't feel safe, there's nothing else that will replace not feeling safe. Somehow I constructed very early on in my, in my psyche that I wasn't safe because my dad went away and we didn't have any money and my mother married this madman and we were poor and he abused me and we struggled and struggled and struggled and my mother didn't leave because there were no other resources for her. You know, so it was like this whole thing that I constructed. And so my Lee Jean coming out of school was, you know, like Scarlet, I am never going to be hungry again. And so I worked to develop ways to feel safe. And a lot of that had to do with financial independence. But financial independence doesn't, I mean, it helps with feeling safe, but it doesn't provide safety. 
And so I'm still all these years grappling because, you know, there's no, there's no replacement for safety. There's no FPO. There's just no FPO for safety. And so a lot of what I'm afraid to do, I use the excuse, well, what if I end up homeless in the street? And like my therapist and my wife are both like, that's just not going to happen at this point, Deb. I still worry. What if I end up homeless in the street? What if I can't take care of myself? What if I, you know, what if, what if, what if? And I'd like to get away from those what ifs and be more free in how I approach what I make. So what I make, I'm using the sort of word art for that whole big bucket of things that I like to make. And I'm using the word money as I'm equating that with fear of being insecure. I can relate so much to everything you're saying. It is like ultimately what I've also come to in terms of thinking about my future. So that's a, that's another conversation. Um, I want to, and let me just say one thing about this, because I do, I know that about you intrinsically without you even like, I think people like us have antennas where we recognize somebody else and it's like, beep, 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 beep. There's someone just like you. And I've, and I've watched you even before we became friends. And as we've been coming closer and closer friends now over the years and sharing deeper, more meaningful sort of secrets and whatnot that I'm like, man, oh man, there's something about us that's nearly identical in that sort of genetic makeup in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's made me feel a little bit softer towards myself <laughs> because I see that it's not just me. There's something kind of hopeful about the fact that this is something that isn't person-specific. It might be condition-specific. Yeah, I think the more I share what my own struggles are, the more me-toos I hear around me, especially from people in similar places in their careers, the more it makes me feel, you know, I feel less alone and definitely less harsh on myself. So we are both teachers. You've been teaching for years and years. I'm pretty new to it at the college level. I've been teaching creative entrepreneurship in the MFA program at Pacific Northwest College of Art for a couple of years now. And I have a group of grad students and they're all in their 20s and 30s. They've all chosen this sort of MFA route versus a, you know, commercial art route. And so they're, they're, Amazing. And we begin the course every year by I have them dream big about what they want their art practice or design business to become. And this is for some of them exceptionally difficult because they've never been given permission to dream and they think in terms oftentimes of limitations. And I have grown so much over the last two decades to think in terms of possibility that I have to stop and remind myself that this was once me. Like I used to be that person who felt like I had no agency in the world. And I think it's particularly hard right now for a lot of young people during COVID because a lot of the things that they'd be out doing and applying for and, you know, trying to make happen have become difficult for them. So how do we go from being human beings who think in terms of what's not possible to what is possible? Because I know this is a journey that you've also been on yourself, and I know you talk to your students about it as well. Um, I think this probably comes back to my learning from Milton Glaser while I was taking his summer intensive at the School of Visual Arts back in 2005. And I really see the year and the maybe two years preceding that as the line in the sand of a different way of, of beginning to try to live. And he said that you could see the world in one of two ways. You can see the world as one of abundance or you can see the world as one of scarcity. 
the world of scarcity is where you have to hold on to everything you have tightly because there's not enough for everybody. There's not enough for you. And the world of abundance is where there is enough for everybody if you share. And if you work together to collaborate, you can make something better in the world. And prior to knowing that, I really did feel like anything that came my way was the, the last time that was ever going to happen. My last chance for love, my last chance for success, my last chance for a book deal. Lisa, I remember leaving a crappy job I had in 1991 and then going to Israel for six weeks with a, a then boyfriend and going to the Wailing Wall and everybody's crying and it's a very sad, sad scene And I start crying too, and I'm crying for the world, and I'm crying for Israel, and I'm crying for the state of things. And I'm also crying because I'm 32 years old, and I believe I am at this point unemployable ever again for the rest of my life. That, in a nutshell, is living in a a life of, of scarcity. And one thing that I've really learned, having made many changes over the years and being nervous about every single one, is that when you're on the precipice of change, you very rarely think about what you're going to gain because you haven't gained it yet. And so it's hard to imagine something that hasn't even manifested. You can certainly have a fantasy, but you have no way of knowing that this is going to happen. So it feels just really pie in the sky, like, oh, maybe that'll happen or maybe that'll happen, but because we don't know how it's going to happen, it's hard to rely on that happening. And because we also don't know what other things might happen that we can't conjure up, we have no way of being able to see into the future. So what we tend to hold on to when we're making changes, at least what I did, was make a list of all the things I'm losing. (laughs) I'm losing power. I'm losing money. I'm losing stature. I'm losing blah, blah, blah. And that often will hold a person back from doing something profoundly different because you don't want to be in a position where you have less of anything. What we don't see are the things that are going to happen that we don't know that we don't know. That's right. And that will happen. I can tell you that will happen for anybody that's making a big decision. I can tell you the hardest moment of making the decision is before you make the decision. Once you make the decision, then it's out. And then all of these other opportunities somehow start to trickle in and pop up and manifest in ways that you could not have imagined otherwise. Thank you. All right. You ready for some rapid fires before we uh, wrap this up? Okay. These are easy. These are easy. Well, we'll see. I'm ready. Okay. Coffee or wine? Coffee. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Pizza or Chinese food? Oh, Sophie's choice. Pizza. Okay. And, you know, I ask everyone rapid fire, or almost everyone rapid fire questions, and that's a new one because I know you like pizza you know and me. Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> new Yorker that I am. Yes. yes. Okay. Shopping or eating? Eating. Serif or sans serif? Serif. Oh, interesting, mm-hmm. says the woman who makes a lot of art out of Helvetica. I know. Okay. And, but, you know, I still have a deep and abiding love for Bodoni. <laughs> also, your hand lettering is a little bit serify. Yeah. Sometimes. Okay. Savory or sweet? Savory. 
and you have a wife who cooks a lot of sweets for you. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'm assuming you like both. I do like both. I do like this both. This is forced choice, which is terrible. All right. Children or adults? Adults. Hmm. Although I know you love your niece and nephew more than uh, anything. Love, yeah. Love is, is not even the word. I think the word is more worship and obsess. Yes. Laundry or a heap of dishes? Laundry. Okay, same. Bubbly or still? Bubbly. Musicals or plays? Lisa. I know. Oh my God. Oh my (laughs) God. Musicals or plays? Oh, what do I do? I mean, think about it this way if there's like, you are forced to only get to go to one for the rest of your life, musicals. Okay. Audio books or music? Music. Okay. And that's the last one. And again, this is going to be another tough one for you because I know you. Dogs or cats? (gasps) (laughs) God. I know. It's a good thing my cats are in New York and I'm in LA. Dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. They hear this. They will be leaving my house with with sticks, with those those sack bags at the end of the stick, leaving me. It's true. It's true. It's true. You have the best cats, though. I must say, I haven't met your puppy yet, but oh, Maximus Toretto, Blueberry Millman, gay. Oh my gosh, I know. He's right up there with Milkshake and in, in new additions to one's life. I know. I'm, I have this fantasy that we'll come down to LA sometime with Milkshake, so Maximus and Milkshake can play. Wouldn't that be um, fun? It would be so fun. Then we, then we can have a name for them when they're like a couple. Max oh my Shake. <laughs> Max a Shake. <laughs> Milkamus. <laughs> Milkamus. I love that better. Milkamus. That's oh, better. Gosh. That's better. Debbie, it's been so great chatting with you. Thank you so much for just indulging my questions and for this entire conversation. And I will put in the show notes all the links to everything or as much of what we mentioned as possible, especially your new book, which I highly, highly recommend. I started reading the interviews the other night and was completely entranced. Oh, thank you, Lisa. You really did pick the best of the best. They're they're really wonderful. And the book is also just really beautiful and interesting. So I think that Tibor would be very proud of you. That so. is the nicest compliment. <laughs> you could ever give me. Thank you. That means so much. I love you, Lisa Congdon. I love you. I love you too, Debbie. All right. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Editing of this podcast by the amazing Gabe Garber. Thanks to Nick Lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the CoLoop Podcast Network. Please subscribe to the Lisa Congdon Sessions on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy what you hear, leave me a review. You can follow me on social media at Lisa Congdon and at the Lisa Congdon Sessions. I hope you'll join me for future episodes. Have a magical day, everyone.